Okay. So this week's Torah portion is still a continuation of the story. Two weeks ago it started, continued last week, and then into this week. Two weeks ago they, the brothers sold Yosef, and then last week he ends up in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, after the whole story of being a slave and then being a prisoner, uh, last week he becomes Viceroy, and uh, the seven years of plentifulness happened while he was collecting and gathering and gathering for Egypt, and then starts the years of famine, and Jacob tells his sons, go down to Egypt and let's get food, and uh, he recognizes, Joseph recognizes his brothers, they don't recognize him, he accuses them of espionage, and he ends up taking one of them prisoner, Shimon. He did that purposely because he knew Shimon and Levi were a lethal combination. They, would, they handled things violently. And he didn't want to have any problems. So he, he took uh, Shimon as a prisoner and sent them back and said, only when you bring your younger brother, Benjamin, will I know that you're telling me the truth. And Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin. And uh, Reuben tries to convince him, and Ben Judah says, let the old man get hungry, and then we'll talk. And so it happened that Jacob held out as long as he could, and then it came to the point where they needed to get more food. And he tells his sons, go down, and Judah says, you know we can't go down unless we have Benjamin. Are you willing to send Benjamin? And, uh, and Jacob says, why? Why did you have to tell him that, uh, that you even have another brother? Why do you have to tell the viceroy? And he says, do we have any idea what he was going to do? And then Judah puts his life on the line. And he says that in this world and in the world to come, I will be indebted to you if I don't bring him back alive. And they come there and Joseph treats them all special. He invites them to his home to have, to have dinner. And then he sends them back with a bunch of goodies and everything packed up. And then he has one of his servants hide the, one of his house people to hide the goblet, his special silver goblet in Benjamin's pack. And then he sends them out accusing, he sends, he sends after they leave, he sends his guards to go chase them down and accuse them of stealing and to find the goblet. And immediately when they hear that, they say, how can you accuse us of such a thing? And they, Judah says that, they all say, don't say specifically, Judah says, he says that the one who has the goblet, he will die and the rest will be servants. And the person from Joseph's house says, it is true, that is what should happen. However, that's not what will happen. Only that person will be taken as a slave. And then, of course, they find it in, Benjamin's backpack and all of a sudden they're all coming back to Egypt and at that point they go ahead and they tell Joseph what should we say God has found us guilty and what does it mean God has found us guilty what he was saying was we know that we didn't steal none of us stole your goblet but God has found a place to pull back his debt and what did he mean by that? And he meant is that we're indebted to God because we sold our brother and God here found a moment to pull back his debt. And to, that's what he told him. 
and he says, let them all go and I'll be the one to stay. And Joseph says, no, the one who stole it will, will stay and the rest will go. And at this point, there's the opening verse by Yigash, a love Yehuda, that's standing in front of Joseph and Judah approaches to Joseph. By the way, it's a interesting thing. In, in the Torah, you have what we call Tante, Tes Nun Tof Aleph. And what that stands for is the Tes is Ta'amim, the musical notes. The Nun is the Nikudot, the vowels. In the Hebrew alphabet, you don't have letters that are vowels. You have dots that are vowels. Then you have Tagin. Certain letters have on top of them in the Torah crowns. And then you have Otyot, the letters themselves. And in truth, every single one of them is extrapolated. And normally, I at least don't know how to extrapolate the musical notes, but I will share with you that there's a teaching from the Vilna Gon on the first three words of the Torah portion that interprets the musical notes. Vayigash Elov Yehuda, the notes are Kadma, Azla, and Revi'i. Vayigash Elov Yehuda. And what it is is Kadma means literally translated, Kadma means stood up, Azla went, Revi'i the fourth son. And hence, it's the fourth son that approaches to Joseph. And he says, let me speak in the ear of my master and do not be angry with your servant for you are just like Pharaoh. And here from the terminologies he's using, we understand that he was speaking harshly to Joseph because he said, don't be angry. So that means why don't be angry? Because he means he was speaking harshly. And then he says, for you are just like Pharaoh. And there's many different interpretations what that means. What that means is that Pharaoh isn't an honest person, and so too you aren't an honest person. You told us one thing, and you're doing another thing. Number two, kikamocha kefaro means that if I have to, I'll go to war against you and your king Pharaoh. And then he goes ahead and he tells him the story. And here is something very, very interesting that we're going to end up talking about. At the end, you know, I always give an insight to it, to today's topic is Joseph and Judah when two opposites meet. But one of the questions asked in the teachings of Hasidus is that there is nothing that Judah tells Joseph that Joseph doesn't already know. Because all Judah does is tell Joseph recounting the story. Joseph knows the story. He was part of the story. So what, what's, what's he repeating? And yet for some reason, by just Judah repeating the story, all of a sudden, Joseph is brought to a point where he can't hold himself back. And he tells everyone to leave. And he reveals his true identity to the brothers. And obviously, one of the questions we're going to have to understand is, there is nothing that Judah told Joseph that should have elicited such a response. All he did was, he told him the story, and then he said, and we told you that Jacob, our father, cannot be separated from 
his only son left of this wife, Rachel, his youngest son. And therefore, how can I go, how can I go up to my father and him seeing that Benjamin is not with us and, and the bad that will happen to my father because of that, from the pain. There's nothing here that Joseph didn't already know. There's nothing here that didn't take place. So why did that cause such a response? And nevertheless, it did cause that response. And Judah stepping forth and telling this to Joseph and offering himself as a slave and let, jo and let Benjamin go back, simply speaking, that is what Joseph was waiting for to see if, if they really did teshuvah, if they did, really did repentance for what they did to him, their brother Joseph. Now I want to share with you, the Rambam says that the ultimate teshuva, the complete, I shouldn't say ultimate, the complete teshuva happens when you do teshuva when you're in the same situation. And he talks about the example of doing teshuva if you committed a sin with a woman. And he says there the words that if you're in the same age, with the same strength, in the same situation, with the same woman, and you refrain this time, that is teshuva because you're in the exact same situation and this time you didn't succumb. If that be the case, we now understand what Joseph was doing. Joseph was setting them up to be the, in the exact same situation. And in that situation, he would force upon them that they should have to let their brother go into slavery. Once again, the same situation. And let's see how they handle it this time. And by Judah stepping forward and saying, I'm the one that's talking because I'm the one that put my name on the line. And him saying, you'll take me or, or we're going to go to war. And that's when he realizes that Judah and obviously the brothers with him rode up to their, rose up to the occasion of the complete teshuva. And simply speaking, once Joseph sees that this is real and they're this time they're all real brothers that's when joseph reacts emotionally now simply speaking joseph tells everyone to leave besides his brothers because he knew the shock of shame and guilt that's going to shower upon his brothers when he reveals to them i am the brother you sold as a as sold into slavery so he doesn't want them to be embarrassed. I'm sorry. He doesn't want them to be embarrassed in front of anyone else. And therefore, he goes ahead and he tells everyone else to leave. Now, Joseph realizes that they're not going to believe him. And therefore, Joseph has to prove himself to them. And Joseph according to one talk of the Rebbe, this was the back and forth that Joseph was playing with them, being mean to them, being kind to them, revealing to them that he knows their history and making himself like a harsh stranger. 
And all of this back and forth was slowly massaging his brothers to be able to accept the reality that he is Joseph. So that when he reveals himself, all the confusion they have of the mixed messages will click and they'll say, ah, now it all makes sense in everything that we've been through with this man because he is Yosef. That is one of the teachings of what happens. Rashi tells us in order to prove that he's Joseph, he actually goes ahead and shows them that he's circumcised, which according to Rashi is another reason why he told everyone else to go out. Now, obviously, one of the questions to be asked here is, why would that be a proof if Joseph forced, and we spoke about this last week, that Joseph forced all the Egyptians as well to have to go ahead and do circumcision? And I always was thinking about this question. I didn't see no answer, but the question is simple. If everyone in Egypt is circumcised by this time, then what would Joseph's being circumcised prove to them that he's their brother? And again, I didn't see this question. I didn't see this answer anywhere. So I'm just sharing with you my own thoughts. I'm thinking to myself that the reason why it's a proof, because it would make a lot of sense to the brothers that while Joseph bought off everyone, their property, and even their bodies as slaves to Jacob, as slaves to Pharaoh, it makes sense to the brothers that he would force upon them circumcision while he himself would not circumcise himself. And that is, and that is an interesting thought that maybe would answer the question of why him showing them that he circumcised and he didn't have to circumcise himself because he was the viceroy and no one was commanding him to circumcise himself. He was the one that commanded everyone else to circumcise themselves. Hence, that would be a proof why is he circumcised. Parenthetically speaking, I want to share with you another teaching of the Rebbe. The Rebbe has the question of why would Joseph circumcise, make everyone in Egypt circumcise themselves in order to get food. Why would, why would Joseph do that? As you know, in Judaism, there's no forcing Judaism upon anyone. Circumcision was clearly a mitzvah, that God, commandment that God gave only to Abraham and his offspring. So why would Joseph want the Egyptians to have to circumcise themselves? It isn't the Jewish way to do that. So the Rebbe has a very interesting thought here. And the Rebbe explains as follows. God told Abraham, you shall circumcise yourself, your offspring, and your property. And by property, he meant human slaves. Joseph, one of the things he did, we said, was that when they had no more money and they had no more land to pay for food, Joseph said, sell yourselves as slaves. Now, even though Joseph didn't tell them to sell themselves as slaves to him, but to Pharaoh, 
Nevertheless, being that Pharaoh told Joseph that you are in charge and other than the throne, there is nothing greater than you. In other words, it carries as if they're slaves to Joseph. And because God told Abraham that he has to, he has to circumcise not only his offspring, but so to his property slash slaves. Therefore, the Rebbe gives an explanation why Joseph forced upon all the Egyptians slavery. And by the way, the Rebbe says that you have to say that there was an obligation because one of the seven Noahide laws was not to spill blood. And there's opinions that say not to spill blood by the Noahides doesn't just mean murder. It means any type of damaging another person or yourself by causing the spilling of blood. And since the seven Noahide laws are punishable by death, that means that there's an opinion that for every single human being, because we're all Noahides, we're all from Noah, there's an opinion that would say that anyone spilling the blood of anyone else in any form or fashion, including spilling your own blood, is punishable by death. Hence, Joseph was not allowed to ask any human being to circumcise themselves unless they were commanded by God. And some opinions say that even though Abraham, from divine inspiration, kept all the mitzvot, the reason why he didn't do the mitzvah of Brit Milah on his own is because he was a Noahide, and therefore he wasn't allowed to spill his own blood until God commanded him to. Hence, according to this opinion, Joseph had to have an obligation to force the people to circumcise themselves, or it was forbidden to him to ask the people to go against the Noahide law and cause the spilling of human blood. Therefore, the Rebbe follows the train of thought that they had the laws of Joseph's slaves, and therefore, it's the obligation that God told Abraham that a Jew has to have circumcised himself, his children, and the human people that belong to him as slaves. An interesting thought process. But either way, going back to our story here, again, I just wanted to emphasize that to the brothers, it would make no sense that, Jake, that Joseph, who was, was not forced by anyone to circumcise himself, would circumcise himself even though he forced everyone else to circumcise themselves. Hence, Joseph so showing them that he was circumcised means that there was a reason why he was circumcised. And the only reason there could be is because he's their brother and therefore he had to be circumcised and he was circumcised by Jacob. Then the next interesting thing that happens is that he tells them immediately, listen guys, you did what you did and that's between you and God. But what happened to me has nothing what to do with what you did. Because what happens to me is between God and me. And if you wouldn't have done it, if it was meant to happen to me, it would have happened to me otherwise. But if I was meant to be sold as a slave, I, that happened by God. And if God didn't have the intentions to sell, that, that I should be sold as a slave, there is nothing you could have done 
that would have made me become a slave. Now, I want to share with you what this is teaching us. This is teaching us a very interesting way of handling any resentments that we have to anyone who has truly done us wrong. We're not talking about your own fantasizing of what he did and why he did and he meant it and it was against me. No, let's say it really happened that someone really did you wrong and voluntarily and intentionally did you wrong. How do you forgive him? And the answer is that the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, he wrote two primary books. He actually wrote three primary books. He wrote the Tanya, he wrote the Code of Jewish Law, and he compiled a, a certain format of the Rabbi Isaac Luria's uh, Siddur. Those are his three primary works that he actually did in writing. The rest, a lot of it was done not in writing. He taught and others wrote. But these three, he actually wrote and published. In the Code of Jewish Law, when it comes to the laws of Yom Kippur, before Yom Kippur, there's the famous law that says that before Yom Kippur, before you can ask God for forgiveness, you have to ask your fellow man for forgiveness. Because God will not forgive you for what you did to your fellow man if that person doesn't forgive you. Now, I want to sh show you what the words the Alter Rebbe says, excuse me, in that law is. He says that you have to do teshuva al-reya bichirosoy for your evil choice. Now, the Alter Rebbe is very precise in his wording when it comes to the, the Code of Jewish Law. And that's why it's referred to as Lishoinoi Hazahov, his golden language, because there are huge amounts of extrapolations and books that are written on the choice of words that the Alter Rebbe uses in his Code of Jewish Law. Now, why does he use the words that you have to ask forgiveness for the evil choice? Reya, from the word ra, bad. Bechirato, his choice. He should just say simple. You have to have forgiveness for what you did. But no. Why? And the answer is because what I did wrong was the choice I made, but not, and what I did, but not what happened to the other person. Now, it seems to be that we're splitting a hair. But without splitting this here, we are lacking the fundamental faith that Maimonides demands of us in his 13 principles of faith. How so? Because there is nothing that will ever be done to anyone that wasn't meant to be done. Principle one. Principle two, there is absolute freedom of choice. If so be the case, then my doing something bad to someone has a dichotomy at play. The reason why that happened to the person is only because God chose for that to happen to that person. And if God didn't choose for that to happen to that person, I could have tried until my face was blue. I would never succeed in doing that to that person. 
But on the other hand, I have complete freedom of choice. So how do the two match? And the answer is, and, and you know, I send out in my Instagram um, memes on the Torah portion. A meme that I sent out, whatever, I have someone that sends it out to me, so I don't know if she sent it out yet today. But the meme that I wrote for this week's Torah portion was the following. For they are all only, for they are all but waiters. Only God is the chef. Now let's be precise in what we're doing here. How many of us sitting in a restaurant and the food is cold or the food is late or the food is not tasting good and we let out our frustration at the waiter knowing very well that the waiter was not to blame for any of this. As soon as the food was ready, he brought it. He didn't have control on whether it's cold or it's hot. And he definitely doesn't have no control on whether it tastes good or not. But very often, because we can't deal with the real person we should be dealing with, we hide in dealing on the one that we're not so afraid to deal with, the college student or the person who's just, quote unquote, a waiter. That's what we do when we get angry on the people who do us wrong. Because the only bad thing that that person did was allowing himself to be the messenger for being the waiter. In other words, according to this teaching, the freedom of choice that we have is to tell God when we will and when we won't be his waiter. We have the right and the obligation to tell God when you want to do good to another person, I will be your waiter. When you want to harm another person, for whatever justified reason God has, I will not be your waiter. God commands us to tell him that. Thus, the only thing that the person who did bad actually did when it comes to harming another person was his evil choice of allowing himself to be used to deliver that distasteful message from God to that person. Now, from the person who was harmed, from his point of view, he, if he truly has faith that everything is from God, then ultimately his faith tells him that the message would have reached him anyway. To quote our sages, God has many messengers. And if this guy wouldn't have done it to me, someone else would have done it to me. Hence, Joseph separates what the brothers did, and he tells them that's between you and God. And what happened to him, that he says is between God and me. And I today understand why God did it. God did it so that I should be here to sustain our family in the time of famine. Now, this process of separating the person, the, the, the what's the word I want to do? The perpetrator and the, I don't, like use, I don't like using the word victim, 
but the affected, the harmed. This separation, you should know, has to be to the extreme. And I want to share with you what I mean by that. My experience in giving this type of topic a lecture, which I've done in the past, people like to take it to the extreme. And I get it because I'm right there with them. If you want to know if something's true or not, take it to the extreme. And if it doesn't hold true in the extreme, then it doesn't hold true anywhere. So most people take it to the extreme in the most horrific of scenarios. Oh, so you're telling me that if Mr. John Doe killed um, Mr. Benny, it, what, he didn't commit murder, he didn't kill the guy? Or if God forbid, God forbid any of these cases, if God forbid John Doe molests a child, oh, no, 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 he didn't do it. It was meant for the child to be molested. I mean, are you going to go that far? And then, you know, I need to take it to the next level. And this is painful as a Jew to talk. But I need to go there because if not, there is no truth at all to anything that we're saying. The six million... Was it ordained by God or did a madman decide and have the power to do that on his own? So therefore, I totally embrace a Holocaust survivor who was angry at God because that Holocaust survivor is right. Being angry at the Nazis and being angry at, at him, Yemach Shemoy, is, is being angry, so to speak, at the waiter. Now, don't get me wrong. The law is that if John Doe kills someone and there's witnesses, the court has to put John Doe to death. In Judaism, there's the death penalty for murder. However, please understand, he is not being put to death because Mr. Benny is dead. Because putting John Doe to death is not going to bring back Benny. Hence, in Jewish law, there would be no reason to kill John Doe because Benny is dead. The reason why we kill John Doe is because in the Ten Commandments it says, Thou shalt not murder. That is an act. Murder is an act of the perpetrator and not just a happening to the harmed. Hence, this is very important and, and we need to battle with it. I cannot tell you that I just follow this and it's so beautiful. You know, yes, abstractly, intellectually, I'm right there. But trust me, I am full of resentment on a lot of people. And according to what I'm saying, I have, I, I mean, how could I be resentful at the waiters? I want to take this one step further because I was fortunate enough to be there and hear this live from the Rebbe and one of the many Fabrengans I was by and one of the many talks I heard where the Rebbe asked a very simple question. One second. If we're saying here that Joseph is teaching us that what the brothers did have nothing what to do with him and they have to work it out with God. 
because what happened to Joseph is only between God and Joseph, Joseph and God, then why did the, why is the law, the Altareb is not the only one that says it, it's in every code of Jewish law. Why is the law that he have to ask forgiveness? Why should I have to ask the person I harmed forgiveness? If ultimately speaking, there's nothing that happened to him because of me. I was just a shlamazel who offered my services. But that's between God and me. It's God that told me that I am mandated to tell him no when he wants to use me to harm someone else. But that has nothing to do with the harm. There's nothing that I did to the harm that would not have happened otherwise. So why am I apologizing to the harm? The Rebbe asked this question, and I was there when the Rebbe asked it. And the Rebbe gave an amazing, an amazing answer. And the answer is, is it's really a total different paradigm in apologizing to a person. And, and I want to share with you, you guys know I talk a lot about recovery. It's very interesting that in the 12 steps of recovery, you never apologize, you make amends. What does making amends mean? Apologizing would be something I did in the past. Making amends would be undoing the pain of the present. Now, understanding that, let's talk about what the Rebbe answered there. The Rebbe answered that the only reason why I am apologizing to that person is because besides the pain of what I did to him a month ago, a week ago, yesterday, 10 years ago, or seven years ago, besides the pain of back then, there's the pain now that that person still lives with that I did this to him. Hence, my apology won't undo the pain of yesterday, but it will end the pain of today. Hence, my apology to the fellow human is not about the past. It's about making an amends in alleviating his pain today. Because on most situations, when you apologize to the point where you're willing to make amends, it helps the other person have closure and stop hurting. So here you see that concerning the past, there's nothing I can do with my fellow human. But that's what I need to do with God. I need to take care of the past wreckage because it's interfering between God and me, me and God. Nothing what to do with the person I harmed. Concerning the person I harmed, the only thing I can do is tell God, listen, I don't know if you still want him to suffer or not, but I am not part of this no more. I am going to end, to the best of my ability, his suffering. And then if you still want him to suffer, find yourself another waiter. So this paradigm of what happens between a human and a human is very deep. And it carries deep messages for three avenues, I believe. Number one, it carries the message to the offender. You're not as powerful as you think you are. 
It is not within your power to harm a single human being or a single creature for that matter if it wasn't already ordained to God, from God. So it lets the, the predator know you're not so mighty. It wasn't you that did it. You're just a shlamazel who was used in this happening. There's a strong message to the, to the person who was harmed. Stop focusing on the, on the waiter and focus on the chef. Stop thinking that you're suffering because what another human being did, because no other human being can ever do to you anything. It's all from God, regardless who delivered it. And the third powerful message here is the reality of amends. Let's not mix up the two. Now, why is that so important? I will share with you, in my perspective, why that's so important. Because ultimately speaking, the one person that's never forgiven is ourselves. The other person, hopefully you can work it out with. And more times than not, you can. Yes, there are times the guy says, listen, I don't want to hear your apology. I don't want to hear nothing. Get out of my life. And I don't want to ever see you again. Yeah, that happens. And that's, again, that's not your issue. That would have to be that person's issue to work his Yosef paradigm. But ultimately speaking, we never forgive ourselves. And the never forgiving ourselves comes from a very deep place of arrogance and falsehood in believing that we were able to do things that weren't meant to be done. Now, I want to be clear here because we're walking a very fine line of faith here. It is mandatory from the Jewish perspective of faith to believe that I have never done a single sin, how horrific and ugly it may have been. I have never done a sin that wasn't meant to be done by me. And nevertheless, there was freedom of choice. Now, instead of going into the whole Maimonides and Raivin and Hasidus on putting the two together, freedom of joy, a freedom of choice and predestined, I want to just sum it up in a simple sentence that one of my mentors once told me, and, and that's the easiest way for me to deal with it when I'm not in the mood of going through the whole three-hour um, real detailed exploration of time, blah, blah, blah. The simple way to understand is foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, predestined. Once it happened, I need to know that it was meant to happen. And part of why it was meant to happen was to bring me to Teshuvah. And every moment I have to know that I now have the freedom of choice to do it again, to stop it, to do a sin, to not do a sin. How do the two coincide? In the world of the omnipotence, they coincide. Hence, Joseph is not just teaching us how to forgive others, but if you really want to get to the core of it all, 
Joseph is teaching us how to forgive ourselves. And ultimately, the fact that Joseph sees that this was because of God wanting him there to save the Jewish people in the time of famine was Joseph forgiving himself. Because Joseph was no fool. And Joseph had to live up to his side of the street. Joseph had to know clearly that he gossiped on his brothers to his father. Joseph had to know that he triggered them again and again with his dream. Hence, Joseph was not an immature person to say, ah, it's all my brother's fault. If not for them, I would have never had to go through this. No, Joseph was a big boy. And Joseph definitely embraced his responsibility in this story, his gossiping to the, to the, to the point with our certain commentators and codifiers that say that the brothers legally had the right to kill him for what he was, what he was tattletaling on them, accusing them of certain things that was punishable by death. So Joseph knew that not only was there the forgiving his brothers, but if he was totally to embrace his own paradigm, that we make bad choices, but happenings, outcomes, are only predestined from God, he had to be able to forgive his choices that he made, his bad choices that he made with his brother that led to this. And only then would he be able to fully embrace that this was all about only God's plan. The choices he made, he'll have to deal with and do teshuva, but the happenings was all about God. And for the happenings, he had no one to be resentful to, including himself. This is a big Torah portion, guys. Yeah, we can just write it off as an interesting story, but I'm talking to you from the most fundamental beliefs in Judaism that defines whether we're a believing Jew or whether we're not a believing Jew. The 13 animamims is to believe that everything is from God, to believe that there is absolute freedom of choice. And now I'm laying forth for you from Joseph's paradigm how the two coexist. Freedom of choice is my actions, not their outcomes. Divine providence is the outcomes, not my choices, so to speak. And even in my choices, again, what I told you, what my mentor taught me, the hindsight and the foresight. Moving right along here. So the next thing is that happens that Joseph needs to send a message to his father that his father should know that this is not a hoax. And there's an interesting verse here that says, when Joseph, when, when Jacob saw the calves that were pulling the, the, the wagons, he knew that Joseph was alive. Why? So our sages say it is unusual to have that animal pull the, the wagons across the, across the, um, across the, I'm sorry, across the desert from Egypt to Jerusalem. And nevertheless, 
the reason why Joseph did it was because Joseph was sending his father a sign. And what was the sign that he, that he sent, right? He saw that he's sending the agalot, the wagons, the wagons he saw. And the reason is for a very simple reason. Joseph had a daily study session with his dad. And he was telling his father, he still remembers what was the last session. And the last session was the Egla Arufa, the wagons, not the calves, the wagons. Why? Because the word Egla, the eagle is a calf. And the last law he learned with his father was a special law. If you find a person dead, he was murdered on the way from one city to another in no man's land in the middle of the two cities. You have to measure to the closest city. And that closest city has to do an atonement. And they have to go ahead and bring a calf as a sacrifice. And they have to say, our hands did not spill this blood. And immediately our sages say, who would think that the rabbis in the courthouse of that city would have spilled the blood of this guy? And therefore they say what it means is that we never would have let him leave our city without enough provisions and protection to reach his destiny. That was the last mitzvah. It's called Egla Arufa. And that was the last mitzvah that Joseph learned with his father. By sending the agalot, the wagons, sorry, I said before calves, so by sending the agalot, the wagons, he sent a message to his father I know exactly, I remember still, and I'm still that same boy who 22 years ago had that last share with you. A teaching of the Rebbe. The Rebbe steps in here and asks a very simple question. If we believe that everything is divine providence, then why was it that God set up that the last session, the Torah session he should have with his father was about this mitzvah? of sending provisions, the responsibility of sending provisions with someone that they should be able to survive their journey until they reach their destiny. And the Rebbe explained a beautiful insight. In davening from the verse in, in prayers, in a verse from Psalms, we say, Magid Yaakov, For he tells his words, his statutes, his judgments to his people. And our sages extrapolate upon this. There are rulers who tell others to do, but they themselves don't do. Not so the Holy One, blessed be he. What he does, he tells us to do. Hence, the sages learn out from here that God performs every mitzvah that he commands us to do. Now, and there's deeper mystical reasons in how that happens, the before, the after, but let's just focus on the simplicity of it. What we just said is that God fulfills the commandment of providing each and every one of us with all the provisions needed for the journey. Hence, God set up that Jacob should teach this to Joseph on the day that he was sold, so that when Joseph, through the 22 years, has moments where he says to himself, I can't, I can't do this anymore. 
What does God want from me? How am I supposed to survive this? A slave, a prisoner in the land of Egypt, responsible for everything. So God had Jacob teach Joseph that there is no journey that any human being has that God didn't give him full provisions to be able to take the journey and successfully reach the destiny. Moving right along to the next concept. So Jacob comes. Jacob comes to uh, Egypt, and Jacob sends Judah first to set up the system. And the question is, what system? Jacob didn't want his grandchildren to lose any time. So the minute they come, they should already have a place where they can study in, in school the Torah. They had set up a yeshiva. So he sent Judah to set up the yeshiva, and they all arrive. And they arrive, 70 people, and the, the Torah tells us all the people. And the problem is that when you have all the people, that equals 69. If you count the people that came, and you count Joseph, his wife, and his two kids, you're going to end up with 69. Hence, from here comes the famous teaching that Moses' mother was born, Yocheved was born, in the gates of Egypt. Once again, you know, I'm always going to turn to the Rebbe's teachings. I, heard, I, I actually learned the teaching of the Rebbe saying, why? Why? Everyone knows this famous story. There was 769, and number 70 was born in the gateway. Really? Hashem had to do that trick in the gateway? Why? And the answer is because Yocheved's offspring, Moshe, had to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. And to be a redeemer, you need to be able to relate to two sides of the coin. You need to be able to relate to the people in slavery, but you need to also be able to relate to out of the box. Someone who only knows in the box cannot be the redeemer because he has no connection, no paradigm, no aspiration and inspiration and vision of out of the box. Hence, Job Moses' mother was born at the gateway in order that Moses should inherit from her both out of the box and in the box so that he would be able to take the people in the box out of the box. That's a beautiful teaching. Now, and again, how does this carry itself to each and every one of us? How this carries itself to each and every one of us is built on a teaching of the previous Rebbe. In the story when he was arrested, he said that our bodies go into exile our souls can never, be, uh, can never be dragged into exile and imprisoned. Hence, we need to know that every single side of every single one of us has both sides of the coin. There's a part of us that very well relates to the pain and the, the constraints of exile. But there's also a side of us, even while we're in exile, that stands above it as a free person. Hence, the, pri the prince in prison. A prince in prison. And then after that, Joseph, Jacob is brought to, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? And, and he answers, 130 years, and my life was filled with misery. And our sages tell us that the holy Jacob was punished for this. The holy Jacob was punished because when you're asked, you have to always give a positive answer. Don't right away start fetching, because how are people supposed to look at you? You, the child of God, and you're suffering, so why do I need any of this? 
Let me go ahead and live a free, a free-spirited life. And hence, Jacob was punished. My grandmother would always tell me that back in Poland, even when they didn't have food to eat, her mother would tell her, rub your cheeks so they look rosy like you just had a good meal and go outside and play. That was the Jewish perspective. You know, keep outside, always show that things are okay. You know, you don't have to kvetch. And obviously, to be able to do that for real, you have to also believe that. Again, the same theme that we started before with Joseph. Okay, let's go further. After it lists 70 people that came to Egypt, and then, and, and then Joseph tells his brothers, listen, make sure to tell Pharaoh that you deal with livestock. Why? Because livestock was a deity in Egypt. And if you deal with livestock, they'll let you be secluded, separated from the masses. Number one. Number two, if you tell him that your livestock, he wants to always build his army. If you tell him that you're a bunch of nebuch, you know, <laughs> pastors, but you guys know how to hold a rifle. So he'll leave you alone. And he picked out the five weaker brothers and he presents them to, to uh, Pharaoh. And they tell Pharaoh that we've always been shepherds uh, for three generations. That's what we do. And Jacob says, and Pharaoh says, okay. And tells Joseph that put them in, in Goshen and let them live their lives there. And that's how Goshen became the Jewish quarters in Egypt. After that, quickly, let's just finish up the Torah portion. It goes back to the story of the famine and what Joseph instituted. And as I shared with you, he instituted that they would have to sell all their money. They would have to buy the food. And then when they ran out of money, they had to pay with their property. And then when they finished with their property, he made them sell themselves. They became slaves. And then to let them know how serious he is, this is, he relocated everyone from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. And our sages say that one of the reasons that he did that was that they shouldn't be able to mock his brothers that you're strangers. Because we're all strangers now in our own land. We were all moved around. Also, he instituted that from here on, four-fifths you keep and one-fifth of your produce goes to Pharaoh. The only ones he excluded from that was the priests. He didn't mess with the members of the clergy. Now, I just want to share with you that this manifests itself in halacha, that even though we know of the mitzvah of giving 10% to charity, the, there is also the concept of giving 20% of fifth. And the reason is because of what it says here, that Joseph Institute, that we give a fifth to charity. And he was talking about Pharaoh. What we learn from this is the charity. I also want to just point out one thing before I get to briefly the discussion of when two opposites meet. I want to share with you that in truth, the famine, and I think I mentioned this last week, that the famine only lasted for two years and not for seven years. Because after two years, Pharaoh was blessed by Jacob. And the blessing that Jacob gave Pharaoh was that the, near, the Nile River should rise for him, meaning that there should be irrigation. Hence, the famine was over in two years. All of this that we learned, how Joseph brought out everyone, was in the first two years itself. Now, and, and obviously, you think about it in the bigger picture. It's, it's beautiful. The whole purpose was to bring Jacob down. Once Jacob's in Egypt, 
Why make anyone suffer anymore? And hence, Jacob was allowed to bless Pharaoh and the famine was over, mission accomplished. Okay, let's just have a very brief, we're running, uh, ooh, 901. So let's, let's really just, uh, in, in just a couple of minutes, let's try to give this thought and insight. So Joseph and Judah meet. Joe, Judah approaches Joseph in the Talmud. This is a big thing. We refer to it as Mismach Giula Litfila. It's why right after the blessing in the morning, Ga'al Yisrael, we go to the Redeemer of Israel. We go straight to the Amida, the prayer of silence, and that the standing prayer, and that is the redemption is Joseph, and, and the silent, um, silent prayer is Judah. So the Talmud makes a big thing out of it. So too in the half Torah, in the portion from the prophets that we read, we talk about how there is the, the Mashiach, the Messiah that comes from Joseph through, through Ephraim and he's, his leadership. And then you have that the kingdom, the leadership comes from Judah. And that's where the ultimate Messiah comes from, the tribe of Judah, son after son. And therefore it talks about bringing the two together. So simply speaking, this meeting of Judah and Joseph is, is, is ramified in all worlds, in the spiritual realms, in the physical realms, and most importantly, in you and me, there's a Judah and a Joseph that have to meet. Now let's talk about briefly what this means. The word Joseph comes from the word to make more. As Rachel said, she named him Joseph and asked that we should, I should have yet another son. Yosef li Hashem ben Acher. May God add on to me another, another uh, son. So Joseph is all about growing, multiplying. And that is manifest mostly in our relationship with God in the study of Torah. In the study of Torah, we are commanded never to just know what we were taught, but we have to extrapolate and create our own broadening of the teachings. So Yosef is about learning Torah. Judah, what does it say? It says that Leah named him Judah because hapam oide. Now I will humbly give gratitude, acknowledge God's kindness to me. Because after Judah, she had four children. Jacob had four wives. They all knew that there's going to be 12 sons through prophecy. So she said, I filled my quota. Now I'm grateful to God that he gave me children. Now, gratitude is humility. It is silence. It is acknowledgement. Now, silence in the sense of humility. Now, what happens between Judah and Joseph? What happens is that Joseph is working on an intellectual paradigm. Remember, he's Torah study. He needs to understand. Hence, the limitations of how far the human mind can understand the divine plan. Hence, Joseph tells the wine merchant when he's in prison, he kind of lets out to him, tell Pharaoh that there's an innocent man in prison who was sold into slavery and then accused of a crime he never did, placed in prison. His human mind was struggling with the events. Judah 
Even though Judah accepted responsibility, if you remember, we shared that, right? We learned in that week where Judah went away from his brothers because he accepted responsibility for not convincing them not to do it. And that's how he ended up with the wife and his three sons. And then he ended up with his daughter-in-law. That whole thing starts with the verse, Vayated Yehuda, and Yehuda went down. He descended. He took a descent. He was the leader of his brothers, and he took responsibility, and thus he felt the, the gravity of what took place. Nevertheless, Judah, in the depths of his being, has the ultimate humility of acceptance, acknowledgement, even for that which he can't wrap his head around. Thus, Judah does not tell Joseph anything that Joseph didn't know yet. All he tells Joseph is he repeats to him the events, which Joseph knew very well. He was part of it, and he already heard about his father not being able to separate himself from Benjamin. So there's nothing here that was told. And yet he heard a story that he never heard before. Because before he was stuck in his intellectual paradigm of trying to make sense of what was happening and trying to understand the divine plan. The human mind does not have the capacity to wrap itself around God's infinite plan. When Judah comes up from a perspective of acceptance, acknowledgement, and faith, all of a sudden Joseph hears a whole new story. He hears the story not from his paradigm, but from a total different POV, point of view. He's all of a sudden hearing that stop, Stop just living the story from your point of view. There's an omnipotent, eternal God's point of view. And if you can let go of your point of view and be open to a point of view that is beyond your grasp, you'll be able to see that everything is from God. And as Job said, no evil, no suffering comes from heaven. And that's why Judah didn't have to tell Joseph anything new. Judah just had to tell Joseph the story again from a perspective that he never heard it. And to make sense out of this, I'm going to close this class with a story. There was, I believe the story was with the Hele Gerushna, very big tzaddik, a very big tzaddik from seven, seven generations ago. Seven, yeah, seven generations ago. And there was a tailor who was hired by the landowner, the Gentile landowner. In those days, there was the landowners. And he was hired for this guy's daughter's wedding that he should make all the clothes. Now, for this Jewish tailor, this this was a do or die because to make clothing for the landowner, he's going to have to take huge loans and buy materials that is beyond his financial capacity. However, if it works right, he will be so handsomely paid that he's set for life. And he knew that he was a good tailor. There's a reason why this landowner, this wealthy landowner hired him. So he set himself to work. He made all the clothes. 
He was so proud of them. He took them to the landowner's palace and he shows them and to his horror, one after another, they all shun the clothing. Ew, this is what you made? I'll never wear this. And now he's ruined for life. So being a chassid, he goes to the Rebbe, which his Rebbe was, the Hele Geruzhina, not Chabad, very close friend of the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, Tzemach Tzedek, but not from Chabad. He was directly from the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid. He was an offspring, actually. And anyway, what happens is he runs to the Hele Geruzhina and he says, Rebbe, 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 save me. I am doomed. And the Rebbe says, what happened? And he told him the story. So the Hele Geruzhina told him like this, listen, I want you to take out every single stitch you made and then I want you to put them back in exactly the way they were and go back to the parrots. Now, the chassid now is like, whoa, you come back with the same clothing to the parrots. It wasn't a big thing for the parrots to just throw a Jew in prison. <laughs> that wasn't a big problem for him. So, you know, if he sees this as the Jew making fun of him and his family, that guy's getting thrown into prison. But he had faith. His Rebbe told him to do it, he's gonna do it. He goes back home, he takes out every single stitch, puts it back together, and then goes back to the porridge with the exact same fashion, style, and clothing. And to his amazement, each one of them is in love with it, and they pay him super handsomely. Oh my God, a miracle from the Rebbe. The same style, the same fashion, the same material they didn't like, and now they're in love with it. He goes back to his Rebbe and he says, Rebbe, this miracle, I can't wrap my head around it. The head of the religion says, no, it wasn't a miracle. I'm going to tell you what happens. Your clothing was beautiful, but there's nothing in the universe as ugly as ego and arrogance. And the first time you made it, you made it with such arrogance that they picked you. And you're, you're already thinking what you're going to buy and how great you are and how you're going to be the richest guy in town. So the fingerprints of your arrogance was all over it. So it was ugly. And when they looked at it, they saw the energy that went into it and they were disgusted. I told you to take everything apart and redo it. But this time you are with a humble heart. So the beauty of your clothing, your fashion, and your style was able to shine through. And that's why they paid you so handsomely. Let's go back to our story. Even Joseph at Tzaddik, as long as he was stuck in his human fingerprints of understanding, he wasn't able to wrap his head around the true beauty of what God is doing. Joseph didn't make any new fashions and new stories. He just took out the stitches of arrogance for Joseph that I am smart. I can figure this out. And he told it to him from a whole new perspective of humility, of acceptance, of acknowledgement of God and God's sovereignty. And all of a sudden, Joseph was moved to tears by the amazement, the kindness, and the beauty of what God did. People, thank you. I'm going to shut the recording and open up the mic.